Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. Or leave a kiss but in the cup, and I'll not look for wine. The thirst that from the soul doth rise, doth ask a drink divine. But might I of Jove's nectar sup, I would not change for thine. Ben Jonson. Ben Jonson is a great lover and praiser of himself, a condemner and scorner of others, jealous of every word and action of those about him, especially after drink, which is one of the elements in which he liveth, an assembler of ill ports which range in him a bragger of some good, who thinks nothing well but either himself or some of his friends. He is passionately kind and angry, careless either to gain or to keep, vindictive, but if needs be, well answered at himself, as for religion, he is versed in both, interprets sayings and doings often to the worse, oppressed with fantasy which hath ever mastered his reason, a general disease in many ports. His inventions are smooth and easy, but above all he excels in translations. Mad he was. Mad to leave Scotland in January to walk all the way back to London. He'd enjoyed the walk up in September, this pilgrimage to the land of his forefathers, a salmon-like instinct to see the native soil. But it was also a time of soul-searching. He'd been mentally exhausted, if not physically. He needed time to consider his life. And so he had walked, to the amusement and great astonishment of friends who thought he would never carry it out. For twenty years he'd been writing without cease, and his work had been acclaimed. But now... Though only 46 years old, he'd begun to sense something. Was it a decline in his powers? Was the muse forsaking him? I doubt that love is rather deaf than blind, for else it could not be that she whom I adore so much should so slight me and cast my suit behind. I'm sure my language to her is as sweet, and all my closers meet in numbers of a subtle feet as make the youngest be that sits in shadow of Apollo's tree. Oh, but my conscious fear that fly my thoughts between prompt me that she hath seen my hundreds of grey hairs, told six and forty years, read so much waste as she cannot embrace my mountain belly and my rocky face, 
and all these through her eyes have stopped her ears. He had enjoyed the week spent with William Drummond at Hawthorne Den during the Christmas period. He did keep an excellent stock of canary. Drummond was a tolerably civilised fellow, if one were to forget his incessant questionings. Of course, one's reputation does precede one, and he was, in this year of 1619, without dispute, the leading writer of the age, a fact noted by the Edinburgh Town Council when they made him an honorary burgess. Drummond, of course, considered himself a poet, a title which was too freely sought and given. His poetry smelt too much of the schools, he had told him. <laughs> the manner in which his every utterance fell on attentive ears in Scotland, why every pearl of wisdom and every cast-off phrase of his was noted, digested, regurgitated, and, above all, no doubt, repeated. for that she had beggared him and he might have been a rich lawyer, physician or merchant. He claims that Shakespeare wanted art, some sense, that in a play he had brought in a number of men saying that they had suffered shipwreck in Bohemia, where there is no sea by some hundred miles. He is to be John Donne, the first poet in the world in some things, but affirms him to have written all his best pieces ere he was 25 years old. But now, since he's made a doctor, repents nightly and seeks to destroy all his poems. But that Don, for not keeping the accent, deserves hanging. Moreover, he says that Don's anniversary is profane and full of blasphemies. That he told Mr. Don if he had written of the Virgin Mary, it had been something. To which he answered that he had described the idea of a woman and not what she was. He told Cardinal Perrin that he's been in France, who showed him his translations of Virgin that they were not. <laughs> he would have to take shelter from the rain again. This race would take him the best part of the year to reach London and he'd promised to visit some friends on the way. But this was what he had wished, to be alone and in his father's country. How different would his life have been if his father had not died before he was born? He would have been able to complete his studies. But then the teaching of his old master Camden more than compensated. And he'd seen the other side of life, which was important. Bricklaying with his stepfather at fifteen. Bricklaying. Benjamin Johnson, bricklayer. So Henslow used to describe him even after he'd written his first plays. Bricklayer. Layer of bricks and layer of words. Brickwright. Rainwright, playwright. Playwright, convict of public wrongs, to me takes private beatings and begins again. Two kinds of valour he doth show at once, active his brain and passive in his bones. Public beatings were always well within his compass. In fact, he relished them. But private beatings were a different matter. But that was why he was here, lost to the city, trying to discover what he knew not. What was it? What was it? What was it? Was he not at the pinnacle of his career, 
Within the last decade, each play he'd written had been hailed a success. Valpone, The Alchemist, Epicene, Bartholomew's Fair. He was in favour with the court. The king himself had recently granted him a yearly pension. He was called upon yearly to compose the royal mask. In the Mermaid Tavern, he was the acknowledged leader of the tribe of Ben. And if on occasion he did drink a little too much, he was still in excellent health? No. It was mental exhaustion, nothing else. He'd always been in the forefront of literary battles, even from the time of his first play. What age was he then? Um, Twenty-five, was it, when he wrote Every Man in His Humour, played by Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men? Even now he did not regret his comments in the prologue on Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare had always been his friend, and his plays were not of an age but for all time. Yet his was not the only method of writing. Though need make many poets, and some such as art and nature have not bettered much, yet ours, for want, hath not so loved the stage, as he dare serve the ill customs of the age, or purchase your delight at such a rate as for it he himself must justly hate. To make a child now swaddled, to proceed man, and then shoot up in one beard and weed past threescore years, or with three rusty swords and help of some few foot and half foot words, fight over York and Lancaster's long wars, and in the tiring house bring wounds to scars. He rather prays, you will be pleased to see one such today as other plays should be, where neither chorus wafts you o'er the seas, nor creaking throne comes down the boys to please, nor nimble squib is seen to make afeard the gentle women, nor rolled bullet heard to say it thunders, nor tempestuous drum rumbles to tell you when the storm doth come. But deeds and language such as men do use, and persons such as comedy would choose when she would show an image of the times, and sport with human follies, not with crimes. Except we make them such by loving still our popular errors when we know they're ill. I mean such errors as you'll all confess by laughing at them. They deserve no less. Which, when you heartily do, there's hope left then. You that have so graced monsters may like men. And that was what he had done, shown on the stage an image of the times, and he had sported with human follies, not with crimes. He'd revolutionised comedy in the theatre. He'd taken it down from its lofty perch and brought it into contact with the world about it. Of all styles, he indeed loved to be named Honest. He sought it in the faces of his fellow men. He looked into their souls to find it there, and not having found it, filled his stage with characters who'd grown old with deceit and mercilessly expose their foibles and their greed. Good afternoon, friend. A very wet day. No, no, you do not know me, but I am the poet Ben Johnson. Yes, the poet. Poetry, you know, is not born with every man, nor every day. Yes, hurry away, my friend. Hurry before I blast you with an epigram. But poets also give advice, my friend. Yes, I agree. Such a waste of time. Learn to be wise and practice how to thrive. That I would have you do. And not to spend your coin on every bauble that you fancy or every foolish brain that humours you 
I would not have you to invade each place, nor thrust yourself on all societies, till men's affections, or your own desert, should worthily invite you to your rank. He that is so respectless in his courses oft sells his reputation at cheap market. Nor would I you should melt away yourself in flashing bravery, lest while you affect to make a blaze of gentry to the world, a little puff of scorn extinguish it, and you'll be left like an unsavoury snuff whose property is only to offend. What a tale the old man would relate in a tavern of a madman lurking on the moor, but not of having met Ben Johnson. There are hundreds of madmen. But I know you, old man, I've written of you, of every man growing old, wrestling with the problems of parental authority and wondering what is to become of the new generation, or indeed of the dangers of that foul weed called tobacco. By gods me, I marvel what pleasure or felicity they have in taking this roguish tobacco. It's good for nothing but to choke a man and fill him full of smoke and embers. There were four died out of one house last week with taking of it, and two more the bell went for yesternight. One of them, they say, will never escape it. He voided a bushel of soot yesterday, upward and downward. By the stocks, and there were no wiser men than I, I'd have it present whipping man or woman that should but deal with the tobacco pipe. Why, it'll stifle them all in the end, as many as use it. Oh, it's little better than Ratsbane or Rosica. He could feel the rain seep through his boots. He'd bought them in Darlington on the journey up, but now there was a hole in one big enough to put his thumb through. Though the brand of the letter T for Tyburn had long gone from his left thumb, he still looked for traces of it. The memory still haunted him. Not only his narrow escape from the gallows, but the killing of his fellow actor, Spencer. They'd been in the strolling players together. They'd been in prison together when a play was closed on account of it been termed seditious. But it was Spencer who challenged him to the field, full knowing that he'd seen service in the Low Countries. Damn all small-minded people who were jealous of the success of their fellows and who regarded their success as a personal affront. Spencer's sword was a full ten inches longer than his. Decker, even Marston then, had opposed him. Marston had slandered him in a play, and he'd replied in kind. But his play, Poetaster, had offended players, soldiers and lawyers, even some of his learned friends in the inns of courts. And in his apologia, he was unrepentant. Should one apologise, if one is right? But he had forsaken comedy for a time and written his tragedy, Sejanus. If tragedy have a more kind aspect, so he, judicious be, he shall be alone, a theatre unto me. Leave me, there's something come into my thought that must and shall be sung high and aloof, safe from the wolf's black jaw and the dull ass's hoof. Sejanus, set in the Rome of Tiberius Caesar, had, of course, been compared to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. He detested this comparison. His play had been based on his own mode, truth of argument, dignity of persons, height of elocution, fullness and frequency of sentence. Shakespeare had written in a vague manner, inventing what he did not know. He lacked the breath of learning. He would never attempt a scene as true as when the news of the fall of Sejanus is reported. These mounting at his head, these at his face, these digging out his eyes, those with his brains sprinkling themselves, their houses and their friends, 
Others are met, have ravished thence an arm, and deal small pieces of the flesh for favours. These with a thigh, this hath cut off his hands, and this his feet. These fingers and these toes, that hath his liver, he his heart. There wants nothing but room for wrath and place for hatred. What cannot oft be done is now o'erdone. The whole and all of what was great Sejanus, and next to Caesar did possess the world, now torn and scattered, as he needs no grave, each little dust covers a little part. So lies he nowhere, and yet often buried. That was in 1603, the year that Queen Elizabeth died, a time of uncertainty both for the writers and players. She had protected the theatre against the mounting pressures of the city government. Puritans. They would ring the death knell of the theatre, yet, despite his best attempts to ridicule them, such nonsense having to build theatres outside the city walls. Of course, there were complaints about crowds blocking streets, and there was the real danger of the plague. His eldest son had died of it in that same year, soon after he'd left his wife. Five years it had been before he returned. He'd been living at Sir Robert Cotton's house at the time and with his old master, Camden. He could still recall to his mind the vision of his son with the mark of a bloody sword on his forehead. He was so frightened then that he began to pray. He described the vision to Camden, who told him to ignore it. But within a few days... Letters came from his wife telling him of the boy's death. In the vision, the boy had appeared to him as a man. Is this the form he would take at the resurrection? He wished now that he'd written him an elegy, as he'd done on the occasion of the death of Salathiel Pavey, a child actor of Queen Elizabeth's chapel. Weep with me, all you that read this little story, and know for whom a tear you shed, death's self is sorry. "'Twas a child that so did thrive in grace and feature, "'as heaven and nature seemed to strive which owned the creature. "'Years he numbered scarce thirteen when fates turned cruel, "'yet three filled zodiacs had he been the stage's jewel, "'and did act what now we moan, old men so duly, "'as sooth the parquet thought him one he played so truly. "'So by error to his fate they all consented, but viewing him since, alas, too late, they have repented, and have sought to give him new birth, in baths to steep him, but being so much too good for earth, heaven vows to keep him. He would be glad to get to the inn where he intended to spend the night, but he must put these melancholy thoughts behind him and think of future work, of the epic poem he planned to write on his return, also the account of his journeys. The muse never leaves those who are fit to receive her, and certainly there was no man more fitted than he. His genius lay within him, but the foundation for his art lay in the classics. No writer was better versed in Latin and Greek. No writer was possessed of a more complete library, and on the publication of his masks his annotations were as widely admired as the texts. No writer was as concerned with the purity of language no writer was as aware of the world about him, or stated conviction so plainly. Ere cherries ripe and strawberries begun, unto the cries of London I'll add one. Ripe, statesmen, ripe! Statesmen, ripe! They grow in every street at six and twenty, ripe 
you shall meet them, and have them yield no saviour. But of state ripe are their ruffs, their cuffs, their gait, and grave as ripe, like mellow as their faces. They know the states of Christendom, not the places. Yet they have seen the maps and bought them too, and understand them as most chapmen do. At naming the French king, their heads they shake, and at the Pope and Spain, slight faces make. Or against the bishops for the brethren rail, much like those brethren thinking to prevail with ignorance on us, as they have done on them. And therefore do not only shun others more modest, but contemn us too, that knows not so much a state wrong as they do. The accession of the Scottish King James to the throne of England with his interest in theatre had been a happy chance. He'd overridden Puritan opposition, which was ever increasing. It was through the patronage of the king that he'd been introduced to the writing of masks. The mask, over the centuries, had been a traditional amusement at courts, depending for its effect on spectacle rather than on a dramatic content, deserving indeed of Shakespeare's comment, the world and his inhabitants shall dissolve and like an insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind. But now it had developed, and this development was due to him. Was it not in the same year as Sir Janus that he'd been asked to devise an entertainment to greet the Queen and Prince Henry as they came through the park at Althorpe? Though inferior in form to the theatre, the creation of a mask attracted his attention. Uh, there were, of course, the... Uh, Monetary reasons. Of all his plays, he'd never made more than two hundred pounds. Yet for a single mask, he could expect to be paid forty. He had developed the mask by adding a dramatic content and by inventing the anti-mask, which preceded the mask itself and which usually was lighter and less formal. And indeed, some of the masks contained his best writing, as in The Shepherd's Holy Day, the description of flowers by the nymph and the shepherd. Strew, strew the glad and smiling ground with every flower, yet not confound the primrose drop, the spring's own spouse, bright day's eyes and the lips of cows, the garden star, the queen of May, the rose to crown the holy day. Drop, drop, you violets, change your hues, now red, now pale, as lovers use. And in your death go out as well as when you lived, unto the smell that from your odour all may say, this is the shepherd's holy day. Well done, my pretty one. Rain roses still, until the last be dropped. Then, hence, and fill your fragrant prickles for a second shower. Bring corn flag, tulips, and adonis flower. Fairy oxeye, goldilocks and columbine, pinks, goulands, king cups and sweet sops and wine, blue harebells, bagels, pansies, calamuths, flower gentle and the fair-haired hyacinth. Bring rich carnations, fleur de luce, lilies, the checked and purple-ringed daffodillies, bright crown imperial, king's spear, hollyhocks, sweet Venus maid and soft lady smocks. Bring, too, some branches forth of Daphne's hair and gladdest myrtle for these posts to wear, with spikenard weaved and marjoram between, and starred with yellow golds and meadow queen. 
that when the altar as it ought is dressed, more odor come not from the Feeney's nest. The breath thereof Pankaya may envy, the colors china and the light the sky. Of course, he had to admit, much as he disliked it, that the designer of the masks, Inigo Jones, added much to their development also. As far as he knew, Jones was the first person to make use of painted scenery and stage entertainment, and his special effects worked with water, lights, and his machines were on a much grander scale than was ever seen on the stage. The staging of a mask often cost a sum in excess of £10,000, which was provided by a group of noblemen. Both he and Jones were paid £40, and the rest of the players, which often numbered 80, were paid lesser sums, uh, the least paid being the fools, who for one pound played the fool, which at least showed that they were no fools. As the king and queen usually attended, he had written some of the masks with this in mind. This was necessary because the king sometimes got restless and upbraided the players for dullness. One of his more recent masks, the Irish mask, had been performed in this manner. It was performed at the wedding of Princess Elizabeth. Although he had not been to Ireland, he had meetings with Irish men in London and had copied their accents and sayings. The story itself was slight. Some Irishmen had come to the court as unlikely ambassadors and addressed themselves to the king, with footmen in attendance ready to beat them. Where is the king? Which is he? Show me the sweet face quickly. My God, how my conscience tis he? And you'll be a king here, my name is Dennis. I shall your majesty's own coat among them in thirty-five five years now. And if thou wilt not trust me now, call up the clerk of the kitchen beyond. He shall give his word upon his is it the fashion to be the ambassadors here and knock them on the heads with the fight sticks? And make the message run out of their mouths before they speak with the king. Here is the king. Ooh. Which is the king? That is the king. Is that the king? Oh, God bless him. Peace. And take care. What you say, man? Christ bless him, I say. Oh, Christ bless him. The sweet face, king. Uh, uh, and his mistress, too, face? I'm come a great many miles, a colonel, Leinster, Ulster, Munster. I'm in own self was born in the English pen. Sacrament of Christ, tell the tale. But he took much more delight in creating masks based on the English folk tales, Robin Hood, Maid Marian, Puck and Oberon. And in the mask of queens, the anti-mask consisted of a band of witches. And, of course, there was the inevitable comparison with Macbeth. The sticks are across, there can be no loss. The sage is rotten, the sulphur is gotten. Up to the sky that was in the ground, follow it then with our rattles round. Under the bramble, over the briar, a little more heat will set it on fire. If it in mind to do it kind, blow water and blow wind. Rouncey is over, the is under. A flash of light and a clap of thunder, a storm of rain, another of hail. All must go home and the egg shall sail. The mast is made of a great pin. Take 
lock up with the sailors thin, and if we go and not fall in. So is the catamountain. The ant and the mole sit both in a hole, and the frog peeps out of the fountain. The do play, and the timbrels play. The spindle is now a turning. The moon, it is red. The stars are fled, for the sky is all a burning. And our nails the spade with pictures full of wax and wool. Their livers I stick with needles quick. Their lacks for the blood to make up the flood. Quickly, dame, then bring your part in. Spur, spur upon little Martin. He was glad to get within the relative comfort of the inn and to imbibe the saving sack. Jones, indeed, was a good designer of masks, but was still a knave. Not a fool, he'd told him, but a knave. You thing like a thing, like a man, he had added, and Jones dared not call him a jackanapes. Ah, he always wrote better after drinking. Did he not lay down the plot of Volpone and wrote most of it after receiving a present of sack? Volpone was, without doubt, his most successful play, a play which would last to posterity. It would be acted when he and Envy were friends. Volpone, the rich miser who, feigns sick, despairs, offers his state to hopes of several heirs, lies languishing, his parasite receives presence of all, assures, deludes. But in the play's prologue, he had again taken issue with his critics and in no uncertain manner. Now, luck yet sends us, and a little wit will serve to make our play hit. According to the parrots of the season, here is rhyme not empty of reason. This we were bid to credit from our poet, whose true scope, if you would know it, in all his poems, still hath been this measure to mix profit with your pleasure. And not a sum whose throats their envy failing cry hoarsely, all he writes is railing. And when his plays come forth, think they can flout them with the saying, he was a year about them. To these there needs no lie, but this his creature, which was two months since, no feature. And though he dares give them five lives to mend it, tis known five weeks fully penned it, from his own hand, without a coadjutor, novice, journeyman, or tutor. Yet thus much I can give you as a token of his play's worth. No eggs are broken, nor quaking custards with fierce teeth affrighted, wherewith your rout are so delighted. Nor hails he in a gull old ends reciting to stop gaps in his loose writing, with a, such a deal of monstrous and forced action as might make Bethlehem affection. Nor made he his play for jests stolen from each table, but makes jests to fit his fable, and so presents quick comedy refined, as best critics have designed. The laws of time, place, of persons he observeth, from no needful rule he swerveth. All gall and copperas from his ink he draineth, only a little salt remaineth. Wherewith he'll rub your cheeks till red with laughter, they shall look fresh a week after.
Volpone already was one of the great villains of the stage, but in a strange way he'd grown to like this evil genius, who was contending with even less worthy villains, all of whom were waiting to inherit his fortune. What should I do but cocker up my genius and live free to all delights my fortune calls me to? I have no wife, no parent, child, ally to give my substance to, but whom I make must be my heir. And this makes men observe me. This draws new clients daily to my house, women, men of every sex and age that bring me presents, send me plate, coin, jewels, with hope that when I die, which they expect each greedy minute, it shall then return tenfold upon them while some, covetous above the rest, seek to engross me whole and counterwork the one unto the other, contending gifts as they would seem in love, all which I suffer, playing with their hopes, and am content to coin them into profit, and look upon their kindness, and take more, and look on that, still bearing them in hand, letting the cherry knock against their lips, and draw it by their mouths, and back again. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> One of his great delights in writing was to seek out suitable names for his characters, names which were a satire in themselves. The list was endless. Peregrine, a gentleman traveller. Castrone, a eunuch. Tribulation, a pastor of Amsterdam. Dapper, a clerk. Roger Formal, a clerk. Surly, a gamester. Epicure Mammon, a knight. Sir Politic Woodby, a knight. Win Littlewit, a wife. Lanthorn Leatherhead, a hobby horse seller. Zeal of the Land Busy, a suitor. Androgyno, an hermaphrodite. Not indeed that he ever made a jest at the expense of those who did not deserve it. As a lover of freedom of speech and expression himself, he often envied the role of the fool in society. Fools, they are the only nation worth men's envy or admiration, free from care or sorrow-taking, selves another merry-making. All they do or speak is sterling. Your fool, he is your great man's darling, and your lady's sport and pleasure. Tongue and bauble are his treasure. In his face begetteth laughter, and he speaks truth free from slaughter. He is the grace of every feast, and sometimes the chiefest guest. Hath his trencher and his stool. When wit waits upon the fool, oh, who would not be he, he, he? The song of Dano and Castrone, but it was to the fox, Valpone, that he entrusted his most thought-of lines. Valpone aided by her husband, attempts to seduce Celia and waxes eloquent to everyone's surprise and Celia's dismay. Oh, God and his good angels, whither, whither is shame-fled human breasts that with such ease men dare put off your honours and their own? Is that which ever was a cause of life now placed beneath the basest circumstance and modesty and exile made for money? Aye, in Carvino and such earth-fed minds that never tasted the true heaven of love. Sure then, Celia, he that would sell thee only for hope of gain, and that uncertain, he would have sold his part of paradise for ready money had he met a cope then. <gasps> Why art thou amazed to see me thus revived? Rather applaud thine beauty's miracle. Tis thy great worth that hath not now alone but sundry times raised me in several shapes, and but 
this morning like a mountebank to see thee at thy window. Aye, before I would have left my practice for thy love. In varying figures I would have contended with the blue proteus of the horrid flood. Now art thou welcome. <laughs> Nay, flare me out. Nor let thy flay's imagination that I was bedrid make me think I am so. Thou shalt not find it. I am now as fresh, as hot, as high, and in as jovial flight as when in that so celebrated scene at recitation of our comedy for entertainment of the great Valois, I acted a young Antinous, and attracted the eyes and ears of all the ladies present to admire each graceful gesture, note, and footing. Come, my Celia, let us prove, while we can, the sports of love. Time will not be ours forever. He, at length, our good will sever. Spend not then his gifts in vain. Suns that set may rise again. But if once we lose this light, tis with us perpetual night. Why should we defer our joys? Fame and rumour are but toys. Cannot we delude the eyes of a few poor household spies? or his easier ears beguile, thus removed by our wile. Tis no sin love's fruits to steal, but the sweet thefts to reveal, to be taken, to be seen. These have crimes accounted be. Some serene blast me, or dire lightning strike this my offending face. Why droops my Celia? And even though Valpone is foiled, brought to court and finally sentenced, he still had given the villain the benefit of the last lines of the play directed at the audience. The seasoning of a play is the applause. Now, though the fox be punished by the laws, he yet doth hope there is no suffering due for any fact which he hath done against you. If there be, censure him. Here he doubtful stands. If not, fare jovially. And clap your hands! He dedicated the play to the two universities, both of whom granted him honorary degrees. On his return to London, he would have to travel to Oxford to accept theirs. And in the introduction he had written of the role of the comic writer, it is his office to imitate justice and instruct to life to form men in the best way of living. Volpone he quickly followed with the alchemist. Of all occupations that men practised, none was so filled with rogues and vagabonds. He had written of them on several occasions. If all you boast of your great art be true, sure willing poverty lies most in you. And in his mask, Mercury vindicated from the alchemists, he had described in a comical fashion what Mercury had suffered from their hands. It is I that am corroded and exalted and sublimed and reduced and fetched over and filtered and washed and wiped, that between their salts and their sulphurs, their oils and their tartars, their brines and their vinegars, you might take me out now a soused Mercury, now a salted Mercury, now a smoked and dried Mercury, now a powdered and pickled Mercury. Oh, never herring, oyster or cucumber past so many vexations. He had a great belief in having bright openings to his plays. So he opened the first scene with a dispute. Face, the housekeeper, in the absence of his master, and with the connivance of Subtle, the alchemist, 
embarks on divers' money-making schemes, which draw to the door a succession of rogues and vagabonds, but from the beginning, the two are quarrelling. Believe it, I will. Thy worst, I fart at thee. Hey, your wits, why, gentlemen, for love. Sarah, I'll strip what you. What to do, lick figs out of my Rogue, rogue! Out of all your sights. Nay, look ye, sovereign general, are you madmen? Oh, let the wild sheep loose. I'll gum your silks with good strong water and you come. Will you have the neighbours hear you? Will you betray all? Hark, I hear somebody. Sir, I shall mar all that the tailor has made if you approach. You most notorious whelp. You insolent slave. Dare you do this? Yes, faith. Yes, faith. Why? Who am I, my mongrel? Who am I'll I? I'll tell you since you know not yourself. Speak lower, Yes. You were once times not long past the good, honest, plain livery three-pound trump that kept your master's worship's house here in the Friars for the vacations. Will you be so loud? Since, by my means, translated suburb, Captain. By your means, Dr. Don. Within man's memory, all this I speak of. Why, I pray you, have I been countenanced by you, or you by me? Do but collect, sir, where I met you first. It was a play that he enjoyed writing one in which he exposed the alchemist for what he was. For a picture of present-day London, however, his Bartholomew Fair surpassed all else in addition to being a comedy of merit. He had brought his play on a travel through the London of the fairs with its gingerbread women, boards, hobby-horse sellers, beadles, roarers, horse-coursers, cut-purses, and perhaps his most endearing creation of all, the grotesquely fat pig-woman, Ursula, whose main attribute is a sharp tongue, and who proves more than a match for the visiting noblemen. Mother of the fair, what's this? Mother of the ball? No, she's mother of the pig, sir. Mother of the pig. Oh, mother of the furies, I think, by her firebrand. Nay, she's too fat to be a fury, sure. Some walking south tallow. <laughs> An inspired vessel of kitchen stuff. She'll make excellent gear for the coachmakers here in Smithfield to anoint wheels and axle trees with. Aye, aye, gamsters. Mock a plain, plump, soft wench of the suburbs, too. The cotch is juicy and wholesome. You must tie your thin, pinched up wear. Pent up be the compass of a dog collar, it will not do. That looks like a long-laced conger set upright, and a green feather like Fennelly the Jowl. Well said, Urs, my good Urs, two of Urs. Is she your quagmire, Dabnogam? Is this your bog? No bog, quagmire, foul vapours. <laughs> yes, he that would venture for it, I assure him, might sink into her and be drowned a week ere <laughs> any friend he had could find where he were. <laughs> and then he he would be a fortnight weighing up again. Well, like falling into a whole shire of butter. There had need to be a team of Dutchmen should draw him out. Answer him, Urs. Where's thy Bartholomew wit now, missus? Thy Bartholomew wit? Hang him, rotten, roguey characters. I hope to see him plagued one day. Pox they are already, I'm sure, with lean playhouse poultry that has the bony rump sticking out like the ace of spades or the point of a partisan that every rib of him is like the tooth of a saw and will so grate him with their hips and shoulders as, taken together, they will as good lie with a hurdle. Halt upon her, how she drips. She's able to give a man the sweating sickness with the looking on her. Mary, look off! 
a patch of your face and a dozen of your breech. Though they be scarlet, sir, I have seen as fine outsides as either of yours. Bring lousy linings to the broker's hair now twice a week. Do you think there may be a fine new cacking stool of the fair to be purchased? One large enough, I mean. <laughs> I know there is a pond of capacity for her. For your mother, you rascal. Out, you rogue, you hedgebird, you pimp, you panniers man's bastard. <laughs> what do you sneer, you dog's head, you trendle tail? Oh, you look as if you were begotten atop a cart in harvest time where the wealth was hot and eager. Go, snuff after your brother's bitch, mistress commodity. That's the livery you wear. Twill be out of the elbows shortly. It's time you went to for t'other remnant. Peacers, peacers, they kill the poor whale and make oil of her pretty going. I'll see him poxed first and piled and double piled. Oh, that's a way her language grows greasier than a pig. The snow snotty nose. Oh, good Lord. Are you snivelling? You were engendered on a she-beggar in a barn when the bold fresh of your sire was scarce warm. Really, let's go. No, face. I'll stay the end of her now. I know she cannot last long. I find by her smile she wanes apace. Mm, does she so? I'll set you gone. Gee, my pig pen hit you a little. I'll scold you hence and you will not go. On his stage, all men and women were treated equally. He himself, in his own life, had more than any man bridged the gap between bricklayer and knight. He was equally welcome in both their homes. Because of the nature of his work and its reliance on patronage, he'd found himself more often in the company of the nobility, but only those who had a genuine love of learning. The Earl of Northampton had once him called before the council and charged with popery and treason. He turned papist when in prison, but of his own conviction had returned to the church. John Donne was born a papist, and he had turned also. But he was Ben Johnson. He inspired others rather than they inspired him. His only models were to be found in his library, in the writings of ancient Greece and Rome, Aristophanes, Philostratus, Catullus, Horace, Juvenal, Though some of his poems were translations, they were loose translations, comprising only a small part of his poetic work. Attend, my rustic friends, attend, some tender words to soothe your knotted brows, for I ascend the beckoning stair. Attend, you may all become members of the tribe of Ben. Hymn to Diana Queen and Huntress Chaste and fair, now the sun is laid to sleep, seated in thy silver chair, state in wonted manner keep. Hesperus entreats thy light, goddess, excellently bright. Earth, let not thy envious shade dare itself to interpose. Cynthia's shining orb was made, heaven to clear when day did close. Bless us then with wished sight, goddess, excellently bright. Lay thy bow of pearl apart, and thy crystal-slinging quiver, give unto the flying heart space to breathe, how short soever. Thou that makest a day of night, goddess excellently bright.
scintillate a rosy wreath, not so much honoring thee as giving it a hope that there it could not wither be. But thou thereon didst only breathe and sentst it back to me, since when it grows and smells, I swear, not of itself, but thee. Johnson.